0: Hey, listeners, welcome back to Misogynoir Murders. I'm your host, Renetta Rideout. Today's story is one that I had a particularly tough time putting together. Surprisingly, the difficulty wasn't due to lack of source material because this was a story that made national headlines. It was hard because of the subject. This episode centers on a toddler who had been grossly abused while she was within the foster care system. Some of the details about her short life kept me awake at night and broke my heart. Abuse against children tops my list of crimes against humanity. So, if you're like me, here's your trigger warning. In May of 2002, the story of a missing four-year-old girl from Miami, Florida made national news headlines and exposed the child welfare system as an overburdened, underfunded, and neglectful agency. It's no secret that the United States is in a crisis as it pertains to our children. In June 2020, The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Children's Bureau published the Adoption and Foster Care Analysis and Reporting System, also known as AFCARS, and they reported that as of September 30, 2019, there were over 400,000 children in our foster care system across the country. According to the Children's Defense Fund, children continue to be the poorest age demographic in the nation. Out of ten and a half million poor kids across all racial demographics, more than one in four are black children. These children find themselves in the crowded foster care system for a variety of reasons. Many are there due to extreme poverty; their families wanted to take care of them but literally couldn't afford to. Others entered the system due to abuse and/or neglect. And according to Afcar's again a staggering 36% of children wind up in the system due to their parents' drug use. With so many children in need of care, it's not surprising to learn that a lot of them slip through the cracks. They are subjected to all types of abuse. They come up missing or, in extreme cases, are killed, all while under the supposedly watchful eye of the state. In today's episode, you will hear about a child who entered the broken system of child welfare when she was removed from her drug-addicted mother's care. Four years later, the child simply vanished and had been missing for 15 months before anyone noticed. This is the tragic story of Relia Wilson, In October 1996, Gloria Wilson was a struggling addict who'd just given birth to another baby girl. This one, named Relia, born on September 29th. Just five weeks after her birth, Relia entered the Florida Department of Children and Families, or DCF, just like her older sister, Brandi Sims. Between her mother's drug addiction and her father's imprisonment, the baby had been neglected and needed the state to intervene. Now, for some parents, the loss of their children to the state often motivates them to get healthy and obtain custody for their children again. However, this did not seem to be the case for Gloria. Dana Kennedy for the New York Times reported on May 24, 2002, that a caseworker noted in 1996 that Gloria was like a stranger to her girls. The caseworker wrote, quote, The girl's mother hardly calls nor stops by to see the children, end quote. Just two years later, in 1998, The state of Florida petitioned to end Gloria's parental rights, arguing that Relia and her siblings were, quote, deprived of necessary food, clothing, and medical treatment, end quote. The state showed that Gloria still was unable to, or perhaps simply didn't want to care for her children. The state presented additional documentation that detailed a visit between Gloria and Relia, that ended prematurely when Gloria returned Relia to her guardian because she, quote, could not take the constant crying, end quote. The New York Times article went on to depict a life of neglect and abandonment for little Relia and her newborn sister, Rodericka. In December 1999, the court approved the placement of Relia and Rodericka into the custody of non-familial adults, Rodericka was placed with Pamela Graham, while Relia was temporarily placed with Pamela Kendrick. Caseworkers in Florida were required to perform monthly check-ins on children whose cases were assigned to them to ensure the kids were indeed being cared for properly by their guardians. Relia's caseworker, Deborah Muskelly, was no exception to this rule. She documented in Relia's file that she was happy and being well cared for by the Kendricks. However, at the behest of Roderica's foster parents, Geraldine and Pamela Graham, DCF supervisor Willie Harris removed Relia from the Kendrick residence and placed her at the Graham residence. Gerilyn argued that it would be in the best interest of both girls, Relia and Rodriguez, to be together. Harris would later testify that in addition to lobbying for Relia to remain near her sister, Gerilyn also reported that the Kendrick residence was quote-unquote filthy, and Pamela Kendrick refused an inspection of her home, thus guaranteeing the removal of Relia from her care. And with that transition, this is where Relia's story becomes convoluted and tragic. Geraldine is Pamela Graham's controlling and dominating partner. Pamela claims she lived in fear of Geraldine, but like many people in abusive relationships, she didn't dare make a move out of fear for her own life. The couple moved to Miami in 1994, where they later befriended a pregnant Gloria Wilson and three year old Relia in 1999. Shortly after their meeting, Gloria's parental rights were terminated, and Geraldine and Pamela just happened to be right there to help out with the girls. Geraldine decided that Pamela would be responsible for Rudrica, and Geraldine would be responsible for Relia. Even though Gerilyn was neither girl's official guardian, nor was she a blood relative. Even though Gerilyn has purported herself as Relia's paternal grandmother. This was and is not known to be true, nor was it documented in Relia's case file. But despite these facts, Geraldine was the one in charge of everything. She made all the decisions and everyone abided by her rules. Gerilyn was empowered to speak on behalf of Pamela to Relia's caseworker and the DCF supervisor. Relia never had an easy time at the Graham residence. Gerilyn seemed to hate Relia and spread malicious lies about her. Gerilyn even referred to Relia as evil and used it as a pronoun for Relia. And Gerilyn sure has her nerve. She sounds like the truly evil one which you'll probably come to the same realization as the story goes on. According to Detra Coakley-Winfield, a friend of Geraldine's, Relia appeared to look sad a lot of the time. Instead of her eyes being full of that childish curiosity and adventure, Relia's told the heartbreaking story of her short life. What Geraldine deemed as evil defiance really was just a child in need of all the things she'd been deprived of her whole life. Affection, love, patience, and support. Sometimes, Relia snuck out of bed to climb the refrigerator to enjoy snacks and cakes at night. It's possible Relia just really likes snacking, like who doesn't? But in reality, it's also a big possibility that the child was simply hungry. Either way, how Geraldine chose to deal with Rilia's midnight snacking wasn't anything that should ever cross a normal person's mind. Instead of figuring out the reason behind Rilia's snack sneaking, Geraldine decided Rilia should be restrained to her bed using plastic cuffs. Like... How does one even get to that as a solution? And that wasn't even the worst of what Relia experienced. One day, when Pamela came home, she could hear Relia screaming. As she walked through the house to find out what was going on, she found Relia sitting in bath water that was obviously too hot for the baby's sensitive skin. When Pamela confronted Geraldine about this... Gerilyn told her that Relia wet the bed. So in Geraldine's warped ass mind, I guess this was a responsible way to react to a child who wets the bed. Can you even imagine? Listen, I love taking hot showers, but I cannot imagine subjecting a child to that heat. In my mind's eye, I can see little Relia in that tub and I can't even describe the anger and rage I feel at the thought. I don't know how Pamela didn't beat the living hell out of Geraldine on sight, but of course, no consequences followed Geraldine's horrible actions. And Pamela wasn't the only one who knew things weren't okay with Relia. Detra again Gerilyn's friend later said that Geraldine asked to borrow her puppy cage apparently she needed it for Relia to keep her from quote harming herself end quote Detra never saw Relia in the cage but the mere fact that she was asked for and provided a dog cage for a child should have been a major red flag did Detra report this though? Nope, she sure didn't. She just let it go and never reported this incident to the police or DCF. The dog cage wasn't the only tight space Relia was forced into either. Ludwig Smith, the boyfriend of one of Geraldine's daughters, was visiting one day when he saw little Relia holed up in a tiny laundry closet for quote-unquote misbehaving. Ludwig also stated "Geraldine told him that the puppy cage was also used to control Relia's movements. So here's yet another person who knew about the cage and other methods of confinement, and yet Relia remained in the custody of that terrible household. As time progressed, so did the terrible treatment. Pamela recalled a particularly horrible incident on Halloween of 2000. Rilia really wanted to wear a Cleopatra mask instead of the already-purchased angel mask that they had. Like a lot of children, Relia cried in that very special way little ones have when they want us adults to know their world is crumbling. Relia cried and carried on for a while. Not long after her tantrum, Pamela said she noticed Relia's face was marred with scrapes on the sides of her head where the mask had been glued to her face and then ripped off. So basically, Pamela chose to be complicit in the degradation of this baby yet again. How she was not compelled, at least at this point, to take that baby and run, I cannot explain. I swear, each ugly truth I read about this case made me sicker and sicker to my stomach and more and more angry that not a single person advocated for this child. Everyone knew how Relia was treated, but they said nothing. Guys, this ridiculous code of silence in the face of abuse needs to die, period. You're not helping anyone except the abuser when you hold water about the atrocities they inflict on innocent people, especially children. Again, I don't understand how no one in this child's life helped her. How can any of these people sleep at night? And yeah, I'm judging and I'm bothered about this. There's no way I could live with myself, knowing a child was kept in a cage, restrained to her bed, scalded with hot water, or had a mask glued to her face, and I didn't try to help her. Anyway, as usual, I digress. Geraldine complained often that what the state offered in public assistance wasn't worth the burden of taking care of Relia. She even went so far as to ask DCF to take Relia back, but the agency reminded her of her earlier argument that Relia should be with her sister. So they refused to remove Relia. This judgment call would later prove to be a fatal mistake for Relia. One day in December, sometime before Christmas, Pamela came home from work and was surprised not to see Relia upon arrival. When she asked Geraldine where Relia was, Geraldine told her that she was fine, but she wouldn't be coming back, and Pamela would never see her again. Now finally, alarm bells are going off in Pamela's head, and she didn't accept that vague explanation. So the two women argued, and Pamela called herself trying to call the police. I guess she finally decided to grow a pair and try to do something, but It was too little, too late. As she grabbed for the phone, she was stopped dead in her tracks when Geraldine grabbed a hammer and threatened to hit Pamela with it if she did not put the phone down. After Pamela's protest had been quelled, she agreed to follow Geraldine's instructions that when asked about Relia, the official story would be that DCF removed her from their custody for a mental evaluation. But despite this plan of action, witnesses would later testify that the two women had told several different stories before finally sticking to the one about DCF removing Relia from their custody. On January 16, 2001, Pamela paid a visit to the DCF office. Apparently, she wanted to report that Relia no longer lived with them, so the additional public assistance wasn't necessary. By that spring, all of Relia's belongings, including her bed, were sold. In April 2002, Relia's case was turned over to a new caseworker named Dora Bettencourt. Because Relia and her sister were up for potential adoptions, Betancourt began to prepare for an upcoming hearing. Betancourt attempted to brush up on the facts and history of Relia's time as a ward of the state, But as she reviewed the case files, she noticed something really strange. Relia's case hadn't been updated by the previous caseworker, Deborah Muskelley, since January 2001. That's a whole 15 months without any new notes from the worker providing details about Relia's life. Betancourt knew something was wrong so she made an appointment to visit the Graham residence on April 18, 2002. When Betancourt arrived at the home, Geraldine drove her car into the driveway. She was returning home with Rodriguez to greet the new counselor. When Betancourt inquired about the whereabouts of Raelia, she received a startling response. Gerilyn told her that she thought Betancourt was bringing Relia back to her. Obviously, this response threw the caseworker into an internal tailspin, so she asked Geraldine how she came to that conclusion. Geraldine said that in January 2001, she called DCF to report that Relia exhibited quote-unquote bizarre behavior and that a male caseworker arrived to remove Relia from her home and he never brought her back. According to Geraldine, the child was to undergo a mental evaluation. Now, obviously, this is too hard for Betancourt to believe because there's absolutely no record of any such scenario in Relia's case files. And Betancourt told Geraldine as much. The gravity of the realization that Relia was missing dawned on the caseworker, but the same couldn't be said about Geraldine. Instead of being shocked or incredulous like Betancourt was, Geraldine seemed largely unbothered by the fact that Relia was missing. Betancourt later testified in court when asked how Gerilyn reacted to the revelation that Relia was missing, that Gerilyn did not react as a quote unquote grandmother typically would. Betancourt knew this whole scenario was fishy, so she escalated the situation up the chain, and Relia was officially reported missing near the end of April. As the investigation into Relia's case began, Geraldine claimed that after Relia was taken by the caseworker in January, a few days later, a different caseworker came to the Graham residence and gathered some of Relia's belongings. This is a bold lie because I guess Geraldine forgot she held a big as shit yard sale at which all of Relia's things were sold. Hell, Detra Winfield even bought Relia's dresser. Anyway, weeks later, supposedly, another caseworker arrived to inquire about the other children in the Graham home. DCF confirmed there wasn't a record of any of these alleged visits and there was nothing documented that the removal of Relia from the residence had been submitted for or approved. When asked why she didn't go to DCF to ask after Relia, Gerilyn responded that she'd spent weeks calling DCF and actually did go to the office in an attempt to get answers about Relia, but she couldn't find anything out. It seemed like no matter the questions asked, Geraldine had answers at the ready. It was also hard for DCF to act as a source of truth because of the departmental and individual negligence already on full display in this case. Without a reliable source to contradict her statements, investigators initially did not suspect Geraldine of nefarious deeds. Detective Lupo Jimenez of the Miami-Dade Police Department was even quoted in another New York Times article, Written by Dana Kennedy, referring to Gerilyn, that, quote, she's just as confused as we are. I know she has made several attempts to follow up on the case, end quote. So, are you wondering why DCF wasn't a reliable source? Well, here it is. Relia's original caseworker, Kelly falsified records about Relia. In fact, She hadn't visited the residence in over a year, which is why Betancourt even stumbled upon this Pandora's box. At best, Muskelly made phone call check-ins, which, by the way, are not considered a valid substitution for home visits. When she did make those calls, Muskelly simply took the word of Geraldine that, quote-unquote, everything was fine. And I cannot help but wonder just how far back the falsification of records goes. Remember, Muskelly missed the fact that Pamela Kendrick's house didn't meet the cleanliness standards for DCF. I'd bet that Muskelly hadn't been visiting then either, but that's just speculation because I haven't actually read anything pertaining to that, but it does make you wonder, right? Turns out, Kelly was too busy with her second job as a substitute teacher to bother checking up on the children she was responsible for. In fact, when she was supposed to be fulfilling her duties as a caseworker, she was actually at school teaching. She even logged all sorts of falsified documents, including travel vouchers, pretending that she completed her visits. As a result of her misconduct and negligence, Rilia had simply disappeared, and her file was full of bogus supporting documentation. When the press got a hold of the story, it spread like wildfire. Everyone everywhere looked on in horror at the gaping holes in the DCF system. Headlines and news shows ran with the story, and the public was outraged that a child had not only gone missing while in the care of the state but that no one noticed for over a year the shit storm that rained down even got on former governor jeb bush who partly ran and was elected based on his promises to overhaul the dcf system clearly that was an initiative he failed at with so much external pressure from the public, and now politicians, investigators were hard-pressed to either find Relia or find answers about her disappearance. This is when all eyes turned to the occupants of the Graham household with extra attention to Geraldine. In early May 2002, less than a month after Dora Betancourt's discovery, Miami-Dade County Police conducted a full search of the Graham residence. They scoured the property, but they couldn't find evidence of any foul play. Even though they couldn't find anything out about what happened to Relia, suspicion continued to mount against Gerilyn. As reported in a Los Angeles Times article on May 13, 2002, Geraldine had used over 30 different aliases throughout her life. This came to light after Geraldine decided to sue Alamo, the car rental company. In their efforts to dig up any dirt about Geraldine, they learned of her many aliases, one of them being her current name. Geraldine was actually born Geraldine Thomas, according to a birth certificate the car rental company found. They also learned Gerilyn had been in and out of court for a litany of issues. A clinical psychologist that was called as an expert witness took the stand and said of Gerilyn that, quote, she has certainly presented herself in a way that defies knowing her and understanding her, end quote. In other words, her con artist game was strong, and this information was dug up as a result of Aurelia's disappearance. Each day Relia really was missing was another day Geraldyn's life was under a microscope. As time went on, Geraldyn's credibility decreased more and more. As folks were digging into Geraldine's background, investigators in Kansas City had been on the hunt to identify a decapitated body they discovered in April 2001. Investigators of Miami and Kansas City Police Department's feared this body was that of Relia. The unidentified child, dubbed Precious Doe, had been discovered on April 28, 2001, by officers searching for a missing elderly man when they stumbled upon the tiny headless body of a little girl in the woods next to a church of all places. A few days later, her head was found wrapped in plastic inside a garbage can not far from the wooded area where her body was found. For more than a year, investigators worked around the clock to find out who the child was, but they had no luck. When news about Relia reached Kansas City, investigators were morbidly hopeful that perhaps their precious doe was actually Relia Wilson. So, a DNA comparison was done, but as fate would have it, they did not match. It was confirmed that Precious Doe and Relia were two different children. While it was definitely sad that Precious Doe remained unidentified, there was a sigh of relief that there was still hope that maybe Relia was out there and alive. By the way, in May 2005, Precious Doe was finally identified as Erica Michelle Maria Green, a beautiful three year old who'd been brutally murdered by her mother and stepfather. Boy, I tell you about these pick me ass women who let these weirdos murder their babies and then they have the gall to help out and try to conceal it. It couldn't be me. Anyway, That is a story for another episode. Just know she was finally identified and the monsters who killed her, they got their just dues. So in Miami, investigators are back to the drawing board as they search for Relia. As time went on, the police were still unable to prove Relia's caretakers were involved in her disappearance, but the suspicion against them reached a very high point. Without much to go on, Investigators got creative during their investigation and decided that since they couldn't get Geraldine and Pamela on kidnapping and murder, then they'd just look for something else related to the case. Dana Kennedy for New York Times again reported on October 3rd, 2002 that both Geraldine Graham and Pamela Graham were were charged with multiple counts of fraud because they stole over $14,000 in food stamps and other state benefits. These benefits were intended to assist the couple in caring for Relia. Even though both women knew Relia was gone, they continued to collect these state benefits and the Miami-Dade District Attorney slapped fraud charges against them both. So, I bet you're probably thinking now... But I thought Pamela reported Relia is no longer living with them. How'd they continue getting benefits? Well, you're not alone in that. That's exactly where my mind went, and there are only two explanations that make sense to me. The first is that Pamela lied and didn't actually report that Relia no longer lived at the home. I mean, that could make sense because, you know, she's not the most reliable source. But the second option which I think is actually what happened, is that Pamela did report that Relia no longer lived with the Grams, but the state of Florida, once again, failed to do its due diligence. While this is a hole in the story, the fact remains that both women and Geraldine's son and daughter were charged with fraud. Gerilyn was hit with seven counts of obtaining state benefits with false identification and documents. Pamela was charged with a whopping 12 counts for aiding and abetting public assistance fraud and other charges. Officials associated with the cases described Gerilyn and Pamela as partners in crime and identified Pamela as the one who helped put it all together. Without her, it would have been difficult for Gerilyn to do many of the things she did. Around the same time the caretakers were charged, law enforcement announced they would increase the reward for information leading to Relia or anything about her from 75000 to $100,000. But despite the big reward, investigators were no closer to locating Relia. That is, until someone finally blew the whistle and gave investigators what they'd been waiting for, for two years. In May 2004, faced with the consequences of fraud, Pamela Graham finally decided to come clean and laid everything on the table about Gerilyn and what she believed happened to Relia. Pamela told police everything, including how she helped Gerilyn punish Relia. Three months later, on August 18, 2004, Pamela and Geraldine were both charged with aggravated child abuse and kidnapping. And it just so happens that on that exact same day, Gerilyn came to know a woman named Robin Lunsford who would eventually provide information that blew this case wide open and helped police file a murder charge. Robin was Geraldine's cellmate at the Women's Annex Correctional Facility of Miami-Dade County. And like many folks who share a small space together, the two women got to talking and spilling their guts. According to Robin, Geraldine told her that Relia was a difficult child to care for due to her alleged severe behavioral issues. Geraldine referred to Relia as a demon to Robin and explained that the little girl had finally pushed Geraldine beyond her limit. As a result, Geraldine smothered Relia with the pillow and then disposed of her tiny body in a canal near her home. As Geraldine unburdened her secrets, she had no idea at the conclusion of her two-day confession to robin that the woman took notes that she planned to use to obtain a lighter sentence of her own fast forward to early 2005 and geraldine was moved to another cell this time she met a woman named maggie carr who was known throughout the facility as being a sort of legal clerk in other words she'd learned enough about the law to offer legal advice to other inmates. According to Maggie, Geraldine had sought her advice and information about corpus delicti, a Latin term meaning the body of the crime. It basically means that elements of a crime have to be proven before a person can be tried for the accused crime. Turns out that Geraldine wanted to know if the DA had a case against her without Relia's body. In fact, Geraldine even said to Maggie, in reference to Rillia's body, that, "quote, it's gone." End quote. So basically, this woman who'd maintained stony silence all this time decided it was a great idea to develop loose lips in prison. What an idiot! But hey, I'm happy she did it because on March 16, 2005, Geraldine was finally charged with first-degree murder. Now, I have no idea what took so long, but almost 10 years passed before Gerilyn was actually brought to trial in November, 2012. On January 24, 2013, Gerilyn was convicted of kidnapping, two counts of aggravated child abuse, and a lesser conviction of child abuse. Unfortunately, without Relia's body, the jury was unable to deliver a guilty verdict for murder, just as Geraldine suspected. Even still, she was sentenced to 55 years in prison. Of course, Geraldine appealed the verdict, but on March 11, 2015, the 3rd District Court of Appeal upheld the previous ruling and sentencing. Because Geraldine was already 67 years old when she was convicted, the DA decided not to retry her for murder. As it stood, she would spend the rest of her miserable, hateful life in prison, and good riddance. As for the other players in this horrifying tale, Pamela Graham pleaded guilty to two counts of child neglect, but thanks to her help in convicting Geraldine, she was put on probation, which was officially terminated in April 2013. Robin Lunsford was granted an early release for her help in this case, but was again arrested for violating her parole. The negligent caseworker, Deborah Muskelly, was sentenced to five years probation in order to repay the money she stole from the state. I wish I could say these convictions and sentences are satisfying, but I can't. The reality is, Relia suffered grave injustice, abuse, and neglect. And let's face it, it should never have come to that. At every turn and by every adult person in her life, this child was failed. The system that claimed to have her best interest at heart failed her when it ignored her and the level of care she received. The women given her life to hold and nurture failed her by abusing and ultimately disappearing her, AKA murdering her. The only solace about any of this is knowing that those people who contributed to her disappearance or death can no longer harm anyone else. But what about the rest of the children? What happened to Relia has happened to too many other kids across the nation. This is a problem that goes beyond the state of Florida. This is a problem that permeates the fabric of our country and it needs to be seriously addressed. The system needs reform. In the show notes, I've listed several different petitions that you can sign to help reform this broken system. There are many people out there across the country fighting for our nation's children. Please help them by signing one or all of the LINK petitions. As always, thanks for listening. Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at Massage Noir Murders. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. Your reviews help the show grow and ensure other listeners can enjoy as well. This is a Savvy Sounds production, written, produced, and hosted by Renetta Rideout.